Mass shootings have dominated the news, and uh, it just happened close to us. I, I was out of the country. I happened to turn on the BBC, and their international news 15 minutes after it happened was the July 4th Highland Park shooting, trying to get away from uh, all of that terrible stuff, and there it was. Why are we seeing so many of these attacks? What causes uh, this mostly young men to plan and carry out these atrocious acts of violence? What are the profiles? How do we identify them? Why aren't people reporting them, and most importantly, can we identify them and stop them? When the FBI and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security or local police departments want the insight on school shooters, they call my next guest, psychologist Peter Langman. For over a decade, Dr. Langman uh, has researched into the psychological states and circumstances of these criminals to identify the warning signs and impending uh, acts of violence. His website is the world's largest online collection of information on shootings at schools, colleges, universities, and worldwide. He's the Director of Research and School Safety Training at DriftNet Securities that's based here in Chicago, and he's the author of a recent book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Langman. Well, thank you. So let's talk about the general profile of a mass shooter. Can you give our listeners a little bit, obviously there are exceptions to the rules here, but what are what is the general profile? Well, I think we have to be careful about saying that there is a profile because there's so much diversity when you're looking at school shooters and other perpetrators of mass violence in terms of the attacks they commit, the targets of the attack, and why they're doing it. So these are people who may be desperate, who may be full of rage, but how they got to that point and why they're carrying out the attacks can be very divergent from one to another. So I think we have to be uh, careful not to say that there is such a thing as a profile. Okay. And so I guess, you know, I think in some of the writings that I've seen, there are three different types of of people who do these kinds of things. Again, uh, you're saying there is no certain type, but uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about those three types of people who might commit these crimes? Sure, there may not be a profile, but there are patterns. And based on my research of school shooters and other killers, they tend to fall into the categories of what I call psychopathic shooters, psychotic shooters, or traumatized shooters. And the psychopathic shooters are the people who are without empathy, without conscience, more cold-blooded, maybe sadistic, maybe just enjoy the thought of having power to hurt and kill people. In contrast, the psychotic shooters are people who are suffering some sort of psychotic symptom, such as hallucinations, as in hearing voices, or maybe paranoid delusions or delusions of grandeur. So they're out of touch with reality in some way. And the third type are the perpetrators who come from really chronically and severely dysfunctional families, where there's domestic violence, child abuse, parental drug addiction, alcoholism, parental criminal behavior, and so on. So they may all end up doing what looks like the same act, a mass attack, but how they got to that point and why they're doing it are three different pathways. And there are triggering events, are there not, for these young, mostly young men? And, and if so, what are the types of triggering events that you see? Okay, before I answer that, I just want to point out that most people who are psychopathic, psychotic, or traumatized never kill anybody. Right, right. So those are not complete explanations. Those are part of 
contributing factors that we need to consider. But in terms of triggering events, there's often a whole series of things that go wrong in these people's lives, including academic failures, school discipline, arrest in the community, romantic rejections, family problems, divorce or abuse at home, as I mentioned. They may be involved with drugs or alcohol. A whole host of things can be going on. There may be deaths of loved ones, family or friends leading up to the attack, um, a lot of issues of, of loss, of feelings of helplessness, depression, desperation, anger, and so on. And we, there, a lot has been said about a lot of these school shooters or mass shooters having been bullied. Is that your opinion that you see that as a pattern, or is it not? I think that's been exaggerated. Certainly some school shooters have been picked on, but we need to keep in mind that many kids are picked on, and they never kill anybody because of it. Many school shooters are not victims of bullying, And even when they are victims of bullying, they rarely go after anyone who picked on them. There may be other targets, such as girls who rejected them, teachers who failed them, or administrators who disciplined them. So bullying can be a contributing factor, but I think we need to get away from thinking there's a a one-to-one connection between bullying and a school shooting. When you listen to, or, or if you if you listen to uh, mass shooters uh, being interviewed or read the transcripts, and you have a lot of them on your website, and, and can you give out your website for everybody who wants to take a look at it? Because it really is a very informative um, compilation of information. What what is that? Sure, it's schoolshooters.info, I N F O for information. Schoolshooters.info. Very, very interesting. It has statistics, it has transcripts, it has all kinds of information uh, about these shootings with with the idea being of trying to, you know, at least look at patterns and try to predict, uh, you know, how how these things can be stopped in the future. But um, I wanted to ask you, uh, is there, how do when you hear these people, some of them are talk about how it's almost like a compulsion, like that there's nothing else that they can do, that they have to buy this gun and they see it in their mind. And is there something about being famous? Is there something about doing this in a public forum that is important to them? Or where does this compulsion come from, Can you, if, if you can generalize? Well, what you're touching on is the theme of what we call fame-seeking behavior, People who are willing to kill, to make a name for themselves, to go down in history. Um, People who are so desperate, who feel perhaps so insignificant, so inadequate, that the best thing they can think of is to get a gun and kill people. It's an assertion of power, of dominance, and it's a way to make themselves known. And multiple shooters have described that very clearly in their writings leading up to the attack. Um, let's take a break here. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Peter Langman. He's the Director of Research and School Safety Training at DriftNet Securities, and we're going to talk a little bit about what he does with that organization. If you have a question here or a comment for Dr. Langman, please give us a call, 312-981-7200, and you're listening to WGN. When you're talking about demons, what are the demons? Voices. Well, tell me about it. What are, the, what are the voices about? It's, it's one. It's another voice, the evil side. Okay. And how long has that voice been going on? Years. Okay. When did it start, do you think? 
when your mom passed? It started getting worse when my mom passed. Okay. Did you ever tell anybody about the voice? Never? And what does the voice say to you? Burn, kill, destroy. Okay, burn, kill, destroy what? Anything. You're listening to Nicholas Cruz, who is the gunman in the Parkland shooting, which actually is going on trial on Monday on the death penalty phase of the case. Uh, The juror is tasked with deciding whether he will be getting life or death. And we're here with Dr. Peter Langman, who is the director of research and school safety training at Driftnet Securities and author of his most recent book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. Now, as you listen to that, and I'm sure you have listened to um, Nicholas Cruz's um, confession or the conversation, um, what do you make of this idea that he's had these voices in his head? Is this believable? And if so, is he, you named the three different types, would he be more of the psychotic uh, killer type? You know, it's tricky when the shooter survived the attacks, often in the aftermath, They say all kinds of things that it's difficult to verify. So I think we have to be careful at taking anything a mass murderer says at face value, especially when he's facing, you know, life in prison or in this case, possible death sentence. I don't know what to make of those claims. Um, I have not evaluated him personally. So I don't know if that's a valid report of symptoms or if he's just experiencing his own violent thoughts as if they were voices rather than his own thoughts. So that's a tricky issue. Texture from our 847 area code said kids spend 13 days, uh, 13 hours a day on video games that where people are shot and killed and are instantly back alive. Uh, and people only communicate with text instead of talking face to face. This is why young men are so disconnected and mentally challenged. I hear that a lot. And as a psychologist who studies people who are um, accused of and convicted of mass shootings, is this a part of the problem? You know, being immersed in violence, whether it's video games, films, books, etc., can be a contributing factor. And that's something I write about in my book, Warning Signs. This violence immersion can serve as desensitization, to violence and death. It can serve as possible rehearsal or training. Multiple shooters, both those who have carried out attacks as well as those who have been stopped before their attacks, have noted that they have used video games specifically as a training mechanism to prepare for their attack. So certainly in some cases, that seems to be part of the problem. Let's go to Mark uh, on WGN. Uh, Hi, Mark. You have a comment for the doctor or a question? Well, good afternoon. I have a friend who teaches physics in a very respectable suburban high school, and I mentioned that because she's not someone who makes up stories. She's a very rational person, and she has told me that when it comes to disciplining children in school, her hands are tied. In fact, Some of the kids from the unmotivated classes somehow found out that she's allergic to certain colognes and perfumes, and they deliberately wore those to cause her trouble. So, Mark, are you... She feels that if she makes one false move, she will lose her job because a kid will report it as abuse. And so my question is, 
Do you think, how much of a role does the psychologist think that excessive permissiveness or lack of discipline plays in kids becoming potential shooters? Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to drop you here and I'm going to have Dr. Langman address that issue. Excessive permissiveness, is that a problem with these kids? And I should say adults. I don't know how much that plays into it. You know, again, so many things could be a potential factor. In a few cases, I have seen situations in which, in which the perpetrators had parents who made excuses for their behavior and allowed them to get away with things that they should not have gotten away with. But in my research, that seems to be an exception. But again, in certain cases, that could be true. And we have to be aware that there may be no blanket statement that we can make that would apply to every perpetrator. So in some cases, certain factors may apply, and in other cases, they may not be relevant. You know, we hear a lot about blaming the parents, and in this particular uh, shooting in Highland Park, uh, we had a father who, knowing his child had depression, knowing he had an arsenal of of weapons, knowing uh, knives, and had threatened to kill himself and others, and uh, had a number of really disturbing um, acts and behaviors, um, still went and signed for his void card. Um, what At what point do you blame the parents for these kinds of things? Again, I know what we're trying to do here. We're trying to generalize a little bit. And as you said earlier on, Doctor, that these are all different. There, there's not a, like a one cookie cutter here. But how, what, to what extent do the parents play a role in these kinds of things? Well, first off, I, I want to say that in no case has a parent of a child who committed a school shooting known that he was planning to commit such an attack. However, in some cases, parents have been a major source of problems. For example, in the traumatized school shooters, they have a history of you know, child abuse, domestic violence, drug addiction, illegal behavior, and so on. So certainly in those cases, parents are a major source of distress in the children's lives. In other cases, it may be more a matter of neglecting the child's mental health issues, making uh, weapons available when they should not be available, given those mental health issues, and so on. So we do see that play out in some of these cases. Um, before we go to our break, um, you talk a little bit about why why is it that there are not uh, people reporting these red flags. When you see red flags of kids saying, I want to kill everyone and they want guns and they're maybe stockpiling guns in their, in their garage, why is it that there aren't more reports of these types of things? Well, I have a whole chapter in my book, Warning Signs, called Barriers to Action. So there's a whole lot of reasons that could play into that. I think the biggest one, especially when you're talking about classmates, is they simply don't take the kids seriously. They don't believe that this friend, their, this classmate, teammate of theirs, maybe someone they've known for years, is actually a potential mass killer. So they tend to just blow off those comments and think he's just talking big. And I suppose there are people who might be afraid of doing that in, 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 and maybe causing trouble, right? Or causing, uh, you know, this, the, the, the teacher to take the kid out of school and, and, and then retaliation. Is, is that part of it, too? It could be that they don't want to get their friend in trouble. It could be that they don't want to be seen as a snitch, um, the so-called code of silence among students, um, just a fear of overreacting. Maybe it was just one comment. Maybe I should wait to see if there's further comments. 
But when you're talking about life and death, students need to know hesitation is dangerous and, and lives could be on the line. So uh, even if it's just one comment, they need to speak up. And it's not just, you know, it's everybody's life. It's their own lives. It's And it's the life of the, of the student, too. I mean, um, because many of these, as we know, end in suicide or suicide by, uh, by police. Um, in your studies, have you seen that a lot of the hate here is race-based, uh, or if there's homophobia, I hear that there's a, a, t- a correlation in some regards to some of these adults who are, you know, they, they have hatred for certain ethnic groups, and then you see them lashing out and shooting. Is there such a correlation? Certainly there's a, a fair bit of ideological hatred um, towards specific groups, racial, religious, ethnic, and otherwise. So certainly among adults, you see a good bit of ideological motivation. Um, Among school shooters, even if they have an ideological affiliation with neo-Nazis or white supremacy, they often don't act out on that in terms of victim selection. But with the adults, you do certainly see that being a, a driving force in the targets of their attacks. One of the other things that I think you note somewhere and something I read that uh, that you're a psychologist, so you deal with the mental issues, but you have noted that many of the shooters have physical issues. Can you discuss briefly what your data shows in that regard? I use the phrases um, body-related issues or damaged masculinity. You know, a fair number of the shooters feel like they don't measure up physically in terms of being attractive, being athletic, maybe they're um, unusually short or considered unattractive. Um, they don't have what it takes to succeed in the world of you know, adolescent masculinity. They don't do well in terms of dating. So I, there's that whole physical aspect of feeling like they're inadequate um, physically, sexually, whatever it may be. They, they can't get a girlfriend or um a lot of romantic rejections. So that's a whole other realm that can play into someone's rage and resentment towards people. Um, you're, we have a, just a couple minutes left before we're going to take a break, and then we're going to continue on the other side of 4 o'clock. Your book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. What Tell, tell us a little bit about your book and who should read it. Well, what I try to do in that book is summarize my years of research in a way that's very practical for anyone involved with children, whether that's, you know, educators, law enforcement, mental health professionals, parents, even the students themselves, you know, what should they be on the lookout for? What's been missed in the past that could have been noted and reported? What gets in the way of people reporting things as we discussed? Um, What do warning signs look like? What does it mean to investigate a warning sign? Um, and also to show examples in which warning signs were spotted and reported and the attacks were prevented. Because I want to show people that speaking up makes a difference and it does save lives. And just curious, uh, a little off the topic before we take the break, um, you don't see many of these mass shooters who have been in counseling, do you? Or am I missing that? Well, certainly some of them have been in some kind of mental health treatment at some point in their lives, maybe not at the time of the attack, maybe at some point earlier on, 
but a lot of them have not been, even when there have been significant mental health issues. They may have been depressed or, as with the Highland Park shooter, suicidal even. There were issues that could have been, should have been addressed. Um, so it's not that all of them fell through the cracks and didn't get the help they need. Some of them certainly did get mental health treatment, but maybe it was not enough. Maybe they didn't really want the treatment, so they did not really participate. They kept their violent thoughts to themselves and so on. But certainly we could do better with accessibility to mental health treatment. We're talking with Dr. Peter Langman, and we're going to continue this conversation on the uh, other side of the news. If you have a comment or question, give us a call here, 312-981-7200. I'm going to direct you to Dr. Langman's website, uh, schoolshooters.org. It's a compilation of all kinds of information about these shootings over a period of a couple of decades, and his book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. You're listening to the Karen County Show on We Are on WGN. We're here with Dr. Peter Langman talking about the psychology of school shooters. And um, Dr. Langman, I want to play a little bit from an interview uh, with a man named Aaron Stark, who claims that he could have been and would have been a school shooter, but for the fact that someone intervened. And I want you to listen and tell me um, if, if this is kind of a typical uh, scenario in a, in a person's mind. Go ahead, Drew. I grew up in a really painful and violent house and I internalized that self-hatred early and I made it my own personality. I became, I, I was determined to become the best monster possible. I, I was raised, told I was worthless, told I was nothing. And when you're told you're worthless enough, you will believe it. And then you do everything you can to make the world agree with you. And mm-hmm. that's what I was doing. I, I the, the targets that I had planned, I was either going to shoot a mall food court or my school food court, but the victims were actually incidental. It wasn't really about the people I would have shot. The victims were actually my intended to be my parents, but by making me, I wanted to make them deal with creating me. Kind of chilling. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that before, but does that is that a, does that surprise you, or is that a typical insight into the mind of somebody who has the capacity to uh, commit a mass shooting? Well, no, I'm not familiar with that uh, passage. I had not heard that. Uh, that sounds like what may fall into the category of traumatized school shooters or other attackers. Um, again, we have to avoid making any assumptions or blanket statements as if they apply to all the perpetrators of mass killings. But when you're, when we're talking about the traumatized shooters, that sounds like something that could fit into that category. Someone who's just raised in a, a very dysfunctional family. And he goes on to say uh, that that there was a friend who kind of just took him aside, bought him a meal, talked to him, treated him like a human being, and he backed off those ideas that he had. It was a very interesting interview. Um, there have been 300 or so mass shootings in 2022 alone. It's even hard to say that sentence. Is there a copycat effect? What effect does the publish the publish uh, publication of all of these stories on a routine basis do to people who might be so inclined? You know, I look at that through the lens of various terminology, copycat, role modeling, contagion. Certainly we see that many perpetrators have studied previous perpetrators. They emulate them. They feel a personal connection to them. They often end up quoting them, uh, sometimes even dressing like them. So we do see that one attack often 
precedes a following attack. And certainly the, the major attacks are the ones that are most often cited by subsequent attackers. Uh, you, uh, parents, uh, I hear parents all the time, friends of mine and clients complain that all of these school shooting drills have kind of an adverse uh, effect on children. It scares them. Um, and I know that you do work in this area of trying to prevent these kinds of, of crimes and, or to minimize their effects. What do you tell children about these drills and how they should consider uh consider how that how 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 could you guide them to make them not as afraid as they might be okay well well just to be clear i don't work directly with children in those kinds of drills i think from what i've read though that they are sometimes done in ways that are not age appropriate and i've even read of uh simulations which have brought uh the staff at the schools to tears and a state of panic and anxiety. So we can be traumatizing not only children, but staff, depending on how these drills are done. So a lot of thought has to be put into what are we really trying to uh, teach people? What do they need to get from these drills? How can we do that in a way that's effective and not going to uh, be counterproductive or traumatic? And quickly, uh, you are a director with the DriftNet Securities here based in Chicago. What does that company do? Uh, DriftNet has a, a wide range of products and services all related to school safety. They have very sophisticated school safety technology. They provide trainings and um, warning signs and violence prevention. They do school um, safety assessments. They'll do walkthroughs of buildings to identify weak spots in security. Um, their website is driftnetsecurities.com. So anyone who's interested can go to the website, take a look at their services, even sign up for a free demo to get a, a clear sense of what it is they have to offer. Dr. Peter Lehman, I thank you so much, and thank you for your insight into this really important issue. You have a good rest of your afternoon. Thank you.